0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show
1: description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, conversations with your favorite theater actors and creatives. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. My guest this week ran the Hackney Empire for a decade and put on its pantomimes for 22 years. When the pandemic took hold, Susie McKenna was over in New York where her wife, the three-time Olivier Award-winning actress Sharon D. Clarke, was about to begin previews in the title role in Caroline or Change on Broadway. We recorded this conversation back in September while Susie was staying at her house in Spain, long before we knew there would be a second lockdown in England, delaying the reopening of theatres once again and hampering other efforts to put on shows. Here's my conversation with Susie McKenna. Do you have nice weather there today?
0: Um, Do you know what? It's just clouding over. It's going to rain like hell for the rest of the day, which is fine, to be honest. It's a lovely excuse just to either sit and chill (sighs) and read scripts that I should have read a week ago. (laughs) Ha! (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah i i do i'm so british i do quite like it when you're on holiday in, in europe and you get a really wet day and you can just sit and read with the it's windows so open
0: lovely and and we're right up in the hills so we get very spectacular um oh. storms we get really uh, oh
1: i love a storm
0: oh me too i mean there was one one time i think it was the last time we were here no time before last there was a ter- a really bad storm and it um blew trees over and so there went there was no electricity and Sharon was here on her own and she just said, I kept wishing you were here because I just lit all the candles and just watched the storm with, in candlelight. said so it was just really, really cool. And That's was, oh, really cool. I missed
1: it. It's the sort of thing that on your own would be mildly scary, but with yeah. someone else would be lovely.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Were you in Spain for the whole of like, the peak of lockdown or were you, were you back in the UK?
0: No, we were back in the UK, mostly because Sharon had some work and I was I'm still working for Kiln. So we actually locked down early. It sounds strange. But we came back from New York because obviously I'd flown out to New York to uh, see Sharon's first preview because I, uh, she loves me to see first preview so I know not everybody does but she's like I really want you there so I I flew out on the Tuesday I think it was and she was due to first preview Friday and the on the Thursday she was due to do her um, public dress and uh, that was when Broadway was announced it was closed and you could feel it it was all happening around us it was just the most bizarre thing we knew that the schools had closed two weeks before and it, it was weird. And then of course, you know, like a lot of us, we, I mean, I was taking—I was the only person on the flight to New York in a mask. And I know that was back in March, but I, even then I was like, this is going to be big. And we knew that we had, um, we'd had to, at Kiln, we'd had to close the show because somebody tested positive. And that was all before the lockdown. This was in March, so um, early March. So when I, flew to, when I flew to New York, I was like, I had the industrial mask on. And everyone was looking at me like an absolute mad person. And then I got to New York and you could feel it. People were suddenly going, oh God, this is serious. And then when Broadway announced, but of course the night Broadway announced, we all went out drinking in Midtown and we were in some sort of cellar bar. And I was thinking at the time, I think this is a bit crazy. And... Anyway, we, we only just got... We got the last American Airlines flight out on the Monday because Sharon then decided she was going to come home rather than sit it out. Because they'd said to her initially, oh, sit it out. It'll only be about three weeks. And she's like, oh, yeah, maybe I will. And I'm like, babe, it's not going to be three weeks.
1: Thank God she came home. <laughs>
0: yeah. And so we I we flew back together because my flight disappeared. So the, I was due to fly back on the Monday or the Tuesday. Tuesday. And... Um, We went to sort of put Sharon on my flight and it wasn't there. So luckily because Sharon was working with Roundabout, they were great. So they said, don't worry, American Airlines have some flights still going to the UK. So we managed to get out on the Monday. So when we got back, I I suppose because we were feeling irresponsible that we'd been so lax in (laughs) New York, in terms of we'd we'd gone out drinking that night, because other than that, we'd been really good. We sort of self quarantined immediately, so it was this that thing of going, you know what? Let's let's just not be around people because we, if we haven't got it, we've dodged a bullet because that's what it felt like. Yeah. So we locked down. So we, my mum locked down. I've got an elderly mum who's eighty five. She's out with us at the moment in Spain, but there was there was all that to deal with and. Uh, stuff and then we both were sort of quite busy on lockdown the minute it happened we were there was lots of stuff to do at kiln there was lots of stuff that sharon had to do and then she had her live gig at eno so we decided we'd rather than go backwards and forwards we'd wait until she'd done filmed the gig and then once she'd filmed it we were gonna come straight back down here which is what we did so we were here for most of august and sharon's been here yeah since then and has stayed because she's working out here but i came back in order to actually bring my mum out because i was like you know what if there's going to be another lockdown for, for the for the elderly it's so lonely it's so difficult even though my mum does face time and things so um i thought you just let's just get her away from the four walls of her little apartment So that's what we did. So I drove her down and we, we, we sort of, we, we had a quite a road trip. That
1: that is a long journey. My goodness. How long did that take you?
0: It was, well, we did it over, we did it. We stayed overnight, which Sharon and I, if we drive it, we tend to do it all in one day and share the driving and that's fine. Cause it's about 16, 17 hours.
1: Whoa.
0: But actually with mum, I was like, I can't drive all that way um so we stopped over in a, in a restaurant restaurant we stopped over in a hotel in Dijon so it was about eight hours each day so it was sort of not ridiculous it was like driving for eight hours we had something to eat we slept and then we got up in the morning drove for another eight hours and we were here and I know that sounds a lot but actually I don't mind driving so I I sort of quite like especially in these times I'd rather be in my car <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, we don't, we didn't. You know, on long, along the route on the motorway, and I was really concerned. You know, not for Mum to be near anybody really. And so on the motorway there are picnic areas, and I'm sure this time of year, or certainly earlier in August, they're packed. You know, there's nobody there, so you sort of stop off and you literally can sit and picnic on a picnic table, not see a soul, have a wee in the bushes, and then you find. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, we'd all choose the bushes over those French holes in the ground, wouldn't we?
0: Without a doubt, and and I don't care if how many lorry drivers think they can see me. It's fine, I think it. You know,
1: <laughs> it's so it's so interesting that you were in New York when when it shut down because I've spoken to lots of people who were in London, and the the, the general feeling here has been we did it too late, okay. um, and we should have gone into lockdown the day that Boris Johnson said don't go to the theater. Yeah. Um, so you got home on that day and, and you essentially did go into lockdown yeah. that week anyway. Yeah. Um, what, what was, what was it just, just describe to me what it was like being in New York on the streets? What, what, what it was like seeing other people?
0: It was weird because we, it, 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 it was interesting because actually, as I say, I was the only person on the flight going over with the mask. So it didn't feel like New York was taking it any more seriously than, than the UK was. And it, but actually, what was interesting is when you got into Midtown, people were wearing masks. You could feel the restaurants were emptying. It was almost like over the over the week that I was there, literally from the Tuesday, Wednesday to when we flew back on the Monday, you you sensed everything going fum fum fum, and it was like it was closing down around us. And it was interesting because as Broadway were closing, there were loads of people, friends of ours who were on in, working out there, who were like. I either need to get back to the UK or I don't know how I'm going to survive here because I'm paying rent here, you know, and there were lots of American artists doing that. So there were lots of American artists going, well, do I, do I just get out of New York? And there was that feeling of, I think this is going to be bad. Let's get out. And that was definitely a feeling in, in sort of in general. And a lot of people in, on the broad, in the Broadway shows, because some of the Broadway shows got hit and and had tested positive people tested positive and of course poor Nick um, who died yeah I think obviously was very ill and then passed away I think they'd already lost a couple of people there was a stage door person and I think there was a wardrobe person there were already things happening and so you felt that they were like as much as, the, as, much as the, literally the announcement came out of the blue, and I think for, for, for everybody it did on Broadway, but the fact that it was a unanimous shutdown made everyone go, this is, this is, this is serious and this isn't going to be for a few weeks. And so you could feel people not panicking, panicking to get out, but making those plans and going, I'm going to get on a plane now because I don't think I'll be able to fly home otherwise and I can't afford to stay in New York and all of that. And even some New Yorkers, I mean, there's an actress who was in um, Caroline, mate of ours. She's like got a, 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 you know, a young son and they're in a tiny flat in New York and her husband teaches and stuff. And so is this Casey? Yes. Yes. So so they basically, you know, they piled in the car and drove to um, drove to Canada. And you could feel that feeling of like, will the borders close? No one wants, and also for us, when, they, when, when Trump obviously banned Europe and then didn't ban the UK, uh, how ridiculous. It was like Sharon was still going, well, maybe I'll stay and then you can come back out here. And I was like, oh, you know what? And then literally 24 hours later, the, the travel ban came and she said, well, I'm not staying here if you can't get out here. And I was like, no, babe, let's just go home. (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah, it was, you did have that sense of suddenly people were, people had been socially distancing, but people really were. And then we went into Central Park and it was, yeah, it, it suddenly you just felt it closing down around you and people's tension and anxiety levels going up. And it was a very tangible thing. And I think Broadway closing was sort of the wake up call that New York needed because New Jersey had been being badly hit during, before that, uh, they were closed, they'd close the schools. And, and I think New Jersey alone lost thousands and thousands of people. So, um, and they were, they'd caught, they were talking about cordoning off New Jersey so that no one could travel in and out. So, you know, it was those sort of things that were the rumors that were happening and, and of course, and then people wearing masks very quickly and all of that. And then what was weird is obviously we, we literally flew back to the UK, what felt like by the skin of our teeth, certainly with, with regards to American airlines. I think we could have got other flights, but that was the airline we needed to fly with. And we used to, again, again, we were the only people on the flight. Going back, we were the only people on the flight with it. It was certainly where we were in with masks um, but that you could sense that the air staff were much more careful, and not all wearing masks, but some of them were. And it was at that gradual. And then when we landed at Heathrow, mad, it was mad. I mean, it was like nothing had, nothing was happening, nothing had mm. changed, nothing was going on. And luckily, I'd left my car because I knew I was only there a week. I didn't really want to go on public transport, so I drove there, thinking I'll bite the bullet. It's the same as a taxi for a week. I'll just do it. I'll park. And, um, so we literally just got straight into our car and drove home, and both of us were like, "London isn't taking this seriously yet, is it and we both said the West End's going to follow, but the fact that it took what was it nearly two weeks later, or well, yeah
1: it was it was that Monday yeah. it was that Monday
0: that they announced the West End that was it and you and that and you know, but you still felt um it was funny because we had American friends. Charles Randolph Wright was doing his opening, his show at the Young Vic. And we're pretty certain he caught our plane back to New York because we oh, like, wow. passed over like that. And he said, you know, he's like, he couldn't believe it getting to New York because they didn't let them off the plane until they temperature checked them. And they, and that's all they could do at that point. They didn't really have test tests. Yeah. But they were testing temperatures and taking full details then. That was what March the seventeenth, March the eighteenth, and March seventeenth, and um, you know we just swolled off the plane, could have got on the on the tube, you know, and that's still happening. So you just go, I don't know, I don't know. Gosh, crazy though, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. The longer it goes on, I think, I think, I think, for a lot of people, they had September as a goal, and then we had Christmas as a goal or at least before Christmas, October. And I think there's still possibilities there in terms of social distance shows, but you know, it's now looking more like spring, isn't it? Really? Let's face it um, yeah. Before, yeah. before we went go anywhere near even 70% capacity. I think that's tough on everybody, you know, and I take my hat off to the producers who have, who are brave enough to, you know, and they are everybody, the artists, everyone who were brave enough to go, no, let's make things happen. So yeah and it 's been nice to be part of it i i was I think both Sharon and I were lucky. I was still part of a building, so therefore, as freelancers, we were getting information we were getting you know we were getting a lot of that and i 'm on a few groups that 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 would were getting information, yeah, and then I joined the freelance task force, of course, so I was passing on that information, but that was the main thing on that one was that you could sense all our mates and 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 obviously all the freelancers i 've worked with over the years and i all my Hackney Empire freelancers, which are the family, and then the, fa- the Kiln family, taking on both of those, which is like about 400 people, it's like, you know, you knew that it was so important just to just give them tidbits of not building up hopes, but just at least letting them know what is going on. Because I think as freelancers, We're so isolated, you know, Um, and that's been one of the big changes. And one of the things that is thrown up, actually, how our industry relies on freelancers. You have little or no protection, let's face it, in any in any situation. And with that comes freedom, of course. But that's, you know. But Yeah. So I think in that sense, that the the crisis has thrown up that that idea that, you know, 76 percent of the workforce is freelance. So, you know, how do we protect that that workforce and how how do we keep how do buildings and producers keep up that dialogue that has been happening since lockdown
1: and that dialogue is that dialogue is so important isn't it um i am a freelancer and Mm. for a lot of lockdown on days when i wasn't able to work i felt like an island so that maintaining that connection that dialogue like you say so important even just from a mental health perspective before you even start to think about what it's like to lose income and what it's like to lose to lose work that you think is going to happen
0: yeah absolutely and i think as you know it's hard isn't it? It, it you people don't understand how much we invested of ourselves in projects or in, in enterprises that we do in whatever form of freelancer you are, you invest in it and you're, and and you emotionally invest in it. So it's tough when that is suddenly gone, you know, and, and I think that's, that's hard because also that you sense now that people are even questioning whether they'll ever get to do what they love again i'm on I'm on a very hopeful tip on that one i do I do think it's about surviving between now and then, and I think that's the problem with the theaters as well is that they, they, you know a lot of them have plans and they know where they're going and you know there has been some support from the arts council and things but the reality is is this can't go on forever, and the longer it goes on, the harder it is to keep firefighting and to to keep those plans going with the hope to employ more people of course if the government had been handling things better we would we wouldn't we wouldn't be as bad we would we would be handling it better and freelancers wouldn't be falling through the cracks but also theatre as well would get more support and when you're dealing with I think a government who doesn't understand how the importance of culture or maybe even threatened by it I think this government could be threatened by free thinking in that way if you're threatened you know by that then you know you do have to fight tooth and nail but I think it's I think it's just as much as people don't get it they don't understand how we work they don't understand what we do they don't understand how it works they don't understand how on the front line we are when it comes to social social community cohesion education that whole idea of that you know we are absolutely on the front line of that and from my experience of Hackney Empire particularly but I mean I see I'm as an associate at kiln i see the amazing work that kiln have done you know during lockdown i mean how that they've done it i don't know but they have and and before that i was always in uh, admired it and they work with young young kids who, whose english is not the first language and it's so important all of that and, and my experience at hackney over 20 years of, of the education department there it's like you know we were literally we were literally turning kids around and we were giving them pathways and we were finding ways of 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 widening their their view of their world and so many of them were talented bedroom artists that you just had to drag kicking and screaming out of the bedroom um some you didn't have to they were right there but others you were dragging kicking and screaming but you know and the government don't get that they don't they don't actually get that actually that work is crucial when it comes to the development of a society in general, in terms of how we think about ourselves and other people. But I think it will be creative thinking that gets us out of this. And that's the problem. The government don't have many of those. So actually, if they were listening more in terms of that, about how how we might have to live with this virus until there's a vaccine, how does that work? And you look at the work that's being done in theatre right now by incredible production, heads of production or other people and all of us thinking about well what can we make that might work financially you know what can how can we make it work so it's safe for everybody and and how do we bring the audiences back you know how do we give them the confidence and that will be creative thinkers that find that those those things when i mean that i don't mean just the artists i mean you know creative thinking executive directors artistic directors production managers They're, they're the people who will. We'll, we'll find the ways, because we have to find, we, that's our job, we, sol- we find those solutions. And that's been, you know, that's been interesting to look into that. Um, and hopefully I've been developing something that may happen at Christmas, but you know, if it doesn't, it's okay, it can happen next year. But if there would be, a, if there's, for me, the minute lockdown happened, I was just trying to think of ways I could just get some work for people really, just at Christmas, just like, how can we do this? We're still trying to work it out, but I think, you know, but it's the figures that need to add up more than that. Yes. Yeah.
1: You, you mentioned Christmas. Pantomimes have been a much discussed subject from the start of the pandemic. I think mm-hmm. they very quickly became the focus of of what will be the first thing to happen when theatres can reopen. And, and I think everyone thought, like you say, that that would be pantomimes at Christmas. Mm-hmm. That hasn't ended up being the case despite a lot of mixed messaging about what is safe to reopen when it is safe to reopen and what isn't pantomime has been such a significant part of your career and i suspect that's what you're saying that you've been working on for this christmas or potentially next christmas how do you see the implications on pantomime specifically in the future
0: i think the one thing that's proven in terms of that is how important pantomime is and i think there was a lot of and i 'm counting this within the industry as well, but there was a lot of snobbery about pantomime and and, and even in terms of some theaters attitudes towards it was well, oh it's, that's the money maker and and then we can just go on and do what we want and you know for years it's been you know the the famous book you know putting on Panto to pay for Pinta you know that 's the reality pantomime underpins often artistic visions that go out of outside of that and is often a third if not more of the income of any theater that it's in so i think that the one positive thing on that is and i hope people don't forget it is how important that is and and actually how important it is for in terms of uh, particularly in the last 10 years, but before that as well, but with austerity and the cuts to local, the, the local authority cuts to, to culture because they had to, because they literally were starved of money by the government, the austerity measures. Theatres have been firefighting and looking at every way of eking out some sort of income from their buildings and and, and, and all of that. So therefore, a pantomime became even more important because suddenly... You know, that income was, was being, wasn't being matched anymore by, by maybe even local authorities. So I think, in that sense, it has to be taken seriously. You know, I find it absolutely hysterical that the National Theatre are doing Panto, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll go, <laughs> I'll move along on that one because so well known for it. Um, but actually, I think, um, you know, people might understand now that it makes money and actually it's not the cash cow it needs to be nurtured and invested in and that has always been a frustration is that you you know it's about you invest in that that wonderful thing that underpins everything else you do and if that means you have to you know pour some money into it so that it, it keeps up its standards and it keeps do, do you know what i mean and, and, and yeah. that, that's it it's not about underinvestment or bleeding it dry it's got to be something that's 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 improved upon and, and 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 can grow
1: content is king
0: yes and if you're going to if you're going to have pantomime go into the twenty first century as as I hope you know the empire is trying to do was 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 bringing it into this this century and and it being relevant and it being something that the whole family can enjoy it has to have that balance the kids have to have a good time too and and actually pantomime has the power to to bring those communities together and and the whole thing of community cohesion I think the future of pantomime is that that the writers of pantomime need to be thinking about that when they actually write the pantomimes now in the terms of it's important that we bring that we bring moral morals to to it that's what fairy stories are for okay some of those morals are way out of date now so then let's find the new ones let's find ways of writing them so that they they mean something a little bit more and that doesn't that doesn't take away from the campness and the glitter and the da-da-da. it just means you just try that bit harder to just you know because I think that's that's what will make it more relevant rather than it just being let's put on a panto and make a few bob and I'm not saying that's how the commercial ones think that's not there's incredibly you know the, the whole I feel for the commercial side particularly because I think in that sense they you know that's what they do and for that to just the rug to be pulled from that, and with little or no support, it would have been great to have supported a big a commercial producer to to keep going in some way, or you know, because it was so essential to to the future of theatre. And the big lavish pantomimes are wonderful, and so are the two tiny ones with four people in it. It doesn't matter. It's 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 the genre, it's the form, it's the it's the communication and the conversation with the audience that's important. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be big and glitzy, you know. Mm-hmm. It's nice that they are because it's kids' first first time at the theatre, usually. So to give them a spectacle and to give them something that m- m- blows their minds is is obviously is always been in my mind. Is that's what you do, but that can be well.
1: Easy. Let's let's pick that apart a little bit because you yeah. you were you've been involved with Hackney Empire for twenty two years, if I'm if I'm correct, yes. um, and you've you've worked on a number of pantomimes with them, written them, produced them, starred in them. And that venue is so renowned for its pantomimes. How do you, as an artist, raise that threshold in terms of quality, comedy, humor, you know, everything?
0: I think the the main thing for me was that the hardest thing was to keep that up, absolutely. It was bloody hard because at first I was competing with myself. There weren't any other pantomimes doing what we were doing when we first started in London. You know there really wasn 't i mean it, 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 Stratford east was was obviously doing it multicultural, but they weren 't doing it at the scale that we were talking about. you know we were talking about doing a big scale commercial pantomime that but had the had the sensibility of say the Stratford east pantomime and and and, and beyond that mm-hmm. um, so actually, yeah, I mean it was literally starting with nothing, driving around a van, picking up bits of set from my friends in regional theater really doing it as, as cheaply as we could and all of that. And we did three years and, um, and and it was just about to, you know, it was just building up because it takes three years to build any sort of brands and I hate the word brand, but that's it to, to build up the idea of the show. And we were just getting there. And then of course we, we had to fundraise to refurb the theater. So we were closed and I, I did sort of a fun song factory and Christmas carol stuff for little tiny kids in the 200 seats of theatre while we were closed. When we reopened in 2004, I had to sort of, I found as an artist, I found myself as an artist suddenly starting to, if you like, at least emotionally produce it and thinking more... And, and also then making those demands as as the artist in the building that was trying to create the show saying, look, you know, we have to think about how we build this audience back again. I was hoping that during the refurb time that we'd kept an audience going in some way, which it proved that we had. And of course, what was interesting about that was it was 2004. We had a bit of extra money that, that, that because of the reopening and everything in order to to, to market. So, Uh, we had to bring the investment in the show up in order for us to look like we deserve to be on a twenty-two million pound refurb theatre. You know, we could get away with <laughs> there were things that you you could get away with when when the Hattie Empire was her glorious sticky carpeted nineteen seventies <laughs> uh, lampshade self. You could do that. You know, no no locks on the loo doors. You know, it, you, you could there was stuff you, you were rough and ready. You could get away with it. Two thousand and four, brand new, beautiful, beautiful restored theatre. We had to take the, the, the raise the bar. Um, and, and as an artist, I had to fight for that. I had to fight for that. I, I, I'm not saying I didn't have people who understood, but you, you do, you, it was, you know, you do have to say, no, come on, we have to, this is, we can't get away with that. We need to do this. And we need to think about the next three years. And this is how we build it. And it was interesting because that was the change, because what actually happened was during that time, Serene McKellen, God love him, I love him, and he's been incredibly supportive to us over the years, but he was doing, um, he wanted to play with Twine Key and he played it at the Old Vic. And that was, we'd already announced Aladdin. We were already doing Aladdin, and suddenly they were doing Aladdin. And, you know, of course, it was big news. I mean, of course it is, you know, Serene McKellen playing, Widow Twanky, incredible. And what was weird was that the, the board at Hackney and, and and people at Hackney were just panicking and going, oh my God, we have to change it. I said, we can't change it now. I'm just, No, we were <laughs> just like, and I said, look, the thing is you're never going to get a bigger name than Sir Ian McKellen in a pantomime. You're not. So please don't make me try and find names for this. Let me do what I've always wanted to do and cast it with incredibly... Talented West End quality actors or comedian actors and on on you know good comic actors on the circuit, and so we did. And Clive obviously, Clive had done the other three, the last three that we did before the closure, and he was when we first decided to do in house pantos. And this is quite an anecdote. This is true when the first in-house panto happened in 98, I was asked, who did I want in it? And who, who did I want to work with? And first person I said was, well, I want Steven Edis to write them with me, to write the music. And I want Clive Rowe, Sharon D. Clarke. They need, that's the caliber of people I want in the show. And that's the caliber of black artists I want in the show. This has to have a very, very multicultural, because even even before that, Hackney had been hit and miss on that, you know, and nobody was doing it apart from certain theaters. So. It was like no, this is how it needs to be, and so um, Sharon wasn't available that first year, but she did Cinderella, which was when we got together, and then Clive said yes, and he'd done all three, so it was obvious to me that he would be our dame, and we opened the show without any names. It was all people, you know, Clive, you know, wasn't that well known then, you know, and that says it was it. It literally was a cast of actors doing this story, and that was I lost sleep. I didn't sleep. <sighs> I lost sleep over it because, you know, I was told I was wrong and it wasn't going to work. And I was like, this is the only way it's going to work is if we get taken seriously as this, as this quality piece of theatre. And before that, we'd, we'd get timeout, out, maybe, maybe stand the standard time out. That was sort of it. Maybe the locals come and see and review us. But of course, because Sir Ian was playing Dame and in the same title, all the big broadsheets needed something to compare it to because they'd not had pantomime in the center of London for years since the Palladium were doing them. So they, so they came and, and of course they came and were really surprised (laughs) and we had amazing reviews and were suddenly taken seriously. And Clive of course was like, Oh my God, this is a dame. This is an amazing dame. And so That changed everything in terms of uh, that I had to fight less than I didn't need to get a telly name or a celebrity. I could just do my show. And that made all the difference for me. I wasn't dependent on that it was still important that we had artists that were as journalists were interested in, but that was usually because, Oh my God, you know, Joanne Riding's doing pantomime. She'd never done pantomime before. Josephine Gabrielle's doing pantomime. Oh my God. You know, Sandy Clark, you know, it's like that, that was how we got the interest. And of course, Clive's brilliance as Dame was a continuation of, was continuing and, so, the way of keeping it up was, was hard because we, we, we went into five year cycles, and because we'd invested in a certain amount of sets and props, and we weren't able to reinvent. You know, I'd have to find really economic and really, really um, different ways of reinventing the same mm-hmm. story and, and the same show. And that was usually because I write for the artist, so I cast the show. I'm, I'm thinking about the pantomime all year rounds but from the minute you finish and actually while we're doing it, we're all chatting about the next one. But I usually start thinking of two years ahead. So I'm actually thinking I'm on a two year cycle. So even so I'm sort of always got two shows in my head and that's how we did the 20 years, 21 years and kept that going really. And it was the, the thing was that I had to persuade and beg and cajole people to let me take risk. When we got Scott Brooker, Brooker, the creature maker on board, you know, it was how far can we push that? And work with him and yeah i i I suppose for myself i had to keep it fresh and then of course you know the sort of 10 years after about 10 years suddenly the lyric hammersmith who very flatteringly came and asked me how do we do this (laughs) so steve and i were chatting to them about how we did it you know and how we make a brand and how it needs to have its own identity and very local but london and all of that you suddenly had a few more people doing it so the rivalry helps could push you but for me, I was always competing with myself. How can I do that story in a different way? Yeah. How can I maybe bring in an issue that is on people's minds? I like the shows to be like a reflection of the year politically. And I think after 2016, I became more political because I was my mind was blown and I was so angry. So certainly, the, the last show, the last sort of four or five shows, the last five shows were more political. Although I had political jokes in the others. Suddenly, the storylines for me started to, ha- to have more of a social comment, mm. uh, social commentary and politics embedded in the story, which was more exciting for me to write as well. But I was also venting my anger. It was therapy. It was therapy. Maybe.
1: Understandably, because the, the last five years have been relentless Brexit, Trump, Windrush. Uh, yeah. you know, for, your, for, for the hackney audience, that that's a huge, Phew. constant run of, of yeah. issues. Yeah. The, the language that you've just been using to talk about in terms of pantomime your time at the Hackney Empire mm. cajoling and pushing and fighting mm. I feel like your whole association with that theatre it, it's sort of been that uphill struggle And not that you don't obviously have a huge amount of affection for, for that time but
0: yeah.
1: um, the, the theatre obviously had um, some financial struggles in, in the last 10 years as well and yeah. I'm really interested to know how I mean you said you, you hadn't been sleeping but no. what what was it like feeling like you had the survival of, of a venue that size on your shoulders?
0: I think it's interesting because I thought about it a lot more recently because of obviously the problems that have been happening. And obviously I've left Hackney now, so it's not on my shoulders, but being part of Kiln Theatre and having those conversations and indeed the freelance task force here, you know, but also being in meetings and hearing you know, good friends who are running theatres, talking about their problems and how how difficult it's been for for people running theatres with that responsibility. Uh, it it actually brought it all back, and it had always been a battle at Hackney. And Hackney's always been that sort of theatre, you know, and and and. S- that's, the, that's part of her joy, but it's also a nightmare. It, she's been heavily underfunded for years, and it's incredible that the staff there, the people who work there are incredibly passionate about Hackney Empire, and that's, and her audience, because her audience is Hackney Empire, and, and I think the pantomime helped sort of cement that as a London-wide thing, and then we could build it out. When I took over, I mean, I went through two closures. Well, we went through the, the refurb closure and then another moment where it was really icky, uh, which no one really knows about. And then in 2008, nine, of course the closure happened and that was performing was my first love. And the, I, to make the decision to give up performing in order to take over that theater was not a light one. I took lightly, but I knew that was the case. I knew it would have to be, i would have something it would have to give if, if only for a short while. And I was thinking three years and I'd, sort of help it go and then sort of bow out gracefully and of course seven years later I'm still having the same battles and if I'm honest that was that was the hardest thing was the the responsibility of everybody else on your shoulders was hard and I also feel that very strongly that theatre boards are often not engaged enough to understand what that means some are incredible and i can big up the kill one because during lockdown it's extraordinary i'm i i will not comment about the the empire one but needless to say i felt very lonely and not not having enough artistry and show business experience on that board was a huge problem yes that was hard and i relied a lot on incredible staff who were supportive and we were very much a team trying to to bring her through but there were yeah there were battles there were battles that were needless as well, and things like that, so yeah, I think um you were always firefighting in some way, but that never interesting enough, that never really reflected once i was when i whenever I was working in the actual theater and It is always that thing. If you take it over as an artistic director and you you suddenly realise that your work is less creative in some respects. So it's a different aspect of using your creativity, drinking warm wine and talking and (laughs) money and and trying to get people to give you some, but also my solace was getting into the theatre and doing a show. And then you could actually, yes, you wouldn't have a lunch break. You know, I mean, it was, it was interesting. The first, the first year after I left running Hackney Empire, and I continued to do the pantomime until last year, was the first year I actually sat down and had lunch with the company and could sit in the green room at a lunchtime in rehearsal and, and be, and just have that social side. When I was running the theatre, you, you didn't. You would, I would be, if I wasn't in rehearsal, I would be in the office or I'd be on the phone or I'd be in a meeting. And I, and I know that's not just poor me. I know that's how it works. That's how I saw Kenneth Allen Taylor do that when I was at Nottingham Playhouse, you know, and he was in the in the Panthers. I saw him be in the office for nine, be in rehearsal for ten every lunchtime, you know, every evening. That is that is what happens if you if you're directing the show. So, um, but that was your solace, if you like. That's what kept you sane was was the fact that you had those times. And and you know certainly the the, the backstage stuff had me a second to none with Hoffman Reed and he was my rock my god <laughs> you know about a making the, the making the pantomime work on the money that we had and re, constantly reinvent how we did things and that goes for the whole team you know I had people stay you know there were people that had stayed with us my company manager. Vanessa Sutherland was with me 20 years 22 years and probably is still going to do the it's still working on the pantomime now without me. So yeah, I hope that it does sort of carry on in that way. It was a family, a very dysfunctional, I mean, it's a very dysfunctional family, but we we were an incredible family and we did make it work. But the, I was, I was very grateful that during lockdown, I didn't have that responsibility. I still found myself thinking like that. And during the first freelance task force, I found myself over getting, sort of getting really bogged down with it and trying to sort of sort things and and not being very good at that. And I was finding it frustrating. And Sharon was like, you got to stop that because this is bringing all of that that work and some of that horrible times back to you and it took us you know three it wasn't until 2012 really that i don't think i drew breath or slept very well so it was it was a good two years two and a half years of of that sort of firefighting and then 2012 was a different sort we did seven shows in order to be part of the cultural olympiad and so suddenly you're working (laughs) like a mad thing so yeah i think um i was grateful that it wasn't it wasn't my responsibility and i hopefully i helped in some ways but for my own mental health actually had to sort of not put myself back in that place again. And I, I, you know, I will be absolutely honest. I think when I, when I left Hackney, I was burnt out. And, and Mm. I, I know that now I didn't know it at the time but I do, I do now. And so you don't want to, once you've done that and you've been daft enough to let your body and your brain get to that, which I know many of us do. And once that happens and you the mirrors have showed and you realize you, you don't really want to go back there again, particularly. So I, I always say, you know, people go, I want to run a theater. And I go, yeah, care for what you wish for. But absolutely, it is the most... Um, humbling you know to have, to have been the caretaker because that 's really all you are uh, of, of a somewhere like hackney empire for for what 's felt like twenty two years in terms of Christmas and ten years plus uh, in in the other departments in terms of the whole theater that that 's very humbling and and a great responsibility but also you know a total gift as well it, rightly so it can 't go on forever, but i also i think the one thing i would say is is that certainly there are other theatres that have it easier <laughs>
1: sure but
0: sure. then but then again they have their own problems you know every theatre is individual in that and 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 so and actually you know one hopes that actually coming forward that that maybe more of us as freelancers can get involved in supporting the running of a theatre by being represented on boards and things i think i think other artistic directors i would think would welcome that because it's not enough of that on there.
1: Yeah. Well, that's actually something I was going to ask you about. Um, given that literally hundreds of thousands of people have found themselves without work during the last six months, certainly a question I've been asking myself is what can, what can I do? You know, I, I am a journalist by trade, but mm-hmm. theatre is, is, you know, the thing I love more than anything. Mm-hmm. And specifically in the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking, you know, what can people do, in your opinion, to, to get involved, to volunteer, to, to help? What is there anything people can do at the moment?
0: I think, so. yeah, I mean, definitely there are. I mean, I would say on, on, I think there were two things on that. Good, good friends of mine who've been in this business 30 years are going, I don't know what else I can do. What can I do in terms of for the future or whatever? But just putting that aside for a second, I think in terms of now and in terms of support is look at um, freelancers make theatre work Online on their website um, and also on Twitter and on Insta. Um, volunteer for them if you can. Um, the Freelance Task Force has been wound up now. That was a paid uh, sort of group of people, but a lot of them are continuing. So I'm still involved in that. So obviously, the, the, the website for the freelance So, Freelance Task Force website, Twitter, and there's a lot of information going on there over the next few weeks of a lot of the work that was done in the in the 13 weeks it was going but then there's also um, freelancers make theatre work who i thought were incredibly successful at being a public face of freelance workers they're now um, continuing and but there is there a small group and it's a massive task they're taking on but they're doing labs they're looking at freelance labs with theater so anybody that wants to help get on there and there are lists of ways in which you can mostly write to your MP especially if they're a conservative MP uh, mobilize um, local authorities talk to your local authorities about how the importance of your local theatre is there's a great campaign called the public campaign for the arts join that campaign it's that specific to get people who are not necessarily working in the arts but people who who patronise the arts and who love coming to the theatre or whatever, that's getting them to mobilise so that they can then say to the, to the government, how important culture is to them, to their children, to their children's children. And that only, if conservative MPs are seeing that their constituencies are going, you're not doing enough, or can you help? Or do you know what I mean? Then the message might come through. It's also worth contacting the local. Th- you know, if you're not attached to a theatre and you maybe there's a theatre that hasn't you've worked at that hasn't contacted you. Well, get in contact with them and go. You know, are you talking to freelancers about the situation? If you are, can I go on your can I go on your mailing list? um So there were lots of people that suddenly went on my mailing list because they saw I was doing something on Twitter and they were like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Well." you know another another um email on my list of however many it was that I was keeping in touch with That's not that's not a problem so if you are a photographer or people like you that must have felt very isolated because you're not attached to a building or something you know it was like well attached to this then you know and you will get the information this way so that would be my advice is to, and it also would help you feel like you're doing something and the other the other thing on that is i would say whatever you do, however hard it is, try and keep creative in that, in whatever way that is. It doesn't mean to say if you pick up a paintbrush or or a pencil that you haven't done for years or you've started writing something or you... And I know not everybody can do that, but actually there are there are other ways There, you know, maybe you could start a youth group near you for theatre and maybe there's ways of thinking outside the box of what we can do online here. And, and you know, maybe going to the theatre and offering up your services, not necessarily for free, but sort of find something that actually is has a value to it and see if you can get someone to pay you to do that side of, you know, think about what experience you have. It's also about transferring of skills, you know, where do I, my love is theatre, yeah, but actually where can I transfer those skills? And still keep creative doing that, and I, and I know that sounds easier than it sounds, but I think we're we're very even in our industry. It's all right for me. I write and I do this, and you're like, yeah, I'm very lucky. But I, but I did I only did it because I told myself I could do it. You know, I, I didn't really start writing until I was thirty. So, and I'm, I'm I'm still you know I'm I'm gonna go to film school. I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna learn something new because. I think that's. This is. T- when have I ever had time to do that? You know, don't, I, I think to keep to keep your keep your soul going. Try and find ways of being creative or in interacting creatively in some way with thing with what you're doing, what your love and your passion is. But don't feel bogged down that that's the only pathway. There has to be other ways of doing it and, and monetizing that if you can. Uh, but certainly we need more voices when it comes to freelancers. We need more people saying, you know, this is, we are the forgotten. And look up, look at excluded as well. There's a, That's excluded is actually for freelance workers and self-employed across, across the whole employment sector. But there's some really good action points on their website as well that you could do and even take a petition round to your, to your local neighbors and your local theater and, and, get them to understand what it means because everybody's so hard we're all bogged down with our own problems and that's fair enough (laughs) but actually suddenly when you say well you might lose this theater oh we don't want to lose the theater they may never have gone to it but you know well we don't want to lose our theater you know it's it's that you know it's it's finding ways to communicate what precipice we're all on i suppose yeah
1: yeah the fact that you you know you've built up this this huge career of 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 performing and then moving into somewhere like the, the Hackney Empire and then transferring over over to Kiln networking is such a huge thing and at the moment obviously it's it's a difficult thing to do but how important do you think it is to to get to a certain level within the industry
0: I don't know if I'm honest I didn't have any ambitions to run a theater I didn't have ambitions to write for the theatre. I mean, I started as a dancer. I came into the business, trained as a dancer. My parents were in variety. So they always saw me as a singer and a dancer. And I only really did acting at school or, or amateur am dramatic level. And, and, and so I, I, I really did fall into things. And I, 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 and I did get into drama school, but I deferred my entry a year and then, And then got into hair and so didn't go to drama school, which was not necessarily I wouldn't recommend that because Oh really? (laughs) Well it was a hard it was the hard route. But at the same time, I I would recommend it because I I learned so much. I mean, I don't think what I'm saying is one isn't right, one isn't wrong. But then again, I think certainly not having the opportunity to 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 just be an artist for three years, like you can at drama school. It is a is a is a luxury that those of us who came straight into the industry never really had, and I think that's why when I started writing, well, it was also when I when I first started working with young people at Hackney Empire, I wanted them to consider themselves as artists the minute they walked in the door. We would call it the artist development program, but they were already artists; they weren't wannabe artists. Whereas when you train as a dancer, you don't really call yourself a dancer; you're training to dance. You're told that. You're not a dancer yet. You're not good enough yet. You, do you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so your sense of self as an artist is, is warped. Uh, You become more like a soldier in some ways, sometimes, and then you can find ways of expressing yourself. So I always wanted our kids at Hackney to our young artists at Hackney to, to, to be writing and creating their own work because the minute you create your own work, there's, there's such a difference in how you view yourself as an artist as well. Not everybody can, but actually to collaborate with artists who are is equally as important and bringing what you can to the table. So I, I think in terms of how it, how important it is to have status, I don't think it's that important. I think the more important thing is that you, on your journey whilst you're working in the industry, make sure that you take note of who inspires you, what inspires you. We all, we all have a good time in a West End show for two years and we might look at, you know, there, there may be ways of sort of going, oh, well, uh, you know, that's my job. I go from one musical to the other, or I go this. There are ways of looking at that and thinking and looking at what other people are doing within that and understanding the industry as a whole. I think in order to survive is a really important thing to do to really understand how a theater works, what, you know, being part of the uh, the machine that a West End show might be is important when you're first coming in that you really understand what those workings are I'm, and who does what job? Don't just take that for granted. But, but it's easier when you're young and uh, you know, thinking, ah, oh, you know, I'm in the, I'm in, I'm in either in the West End or I'm in, I'm in this wonderful theatre and I'm playing the lead. No, there's a lot more to it than that. So I think more importantly, in order to to have longevity in the business and to to perhaps be able to shift in which genre or what part of the industry you're working in. You have to know it inside out. It's like, you know, it's like taking the mickey out of something. You have to know it well before you can pastiche it. And I think that's interesting about what's happened now is that, is that people are understanding a bit more about the workings of how theatre works, what the economy of the theatre, how it works and, you know, how where does the money come from and all of that and what's fair and what's not fair and we all know that there's lots that's not fair and there's lots that's not good and these changing. And I think as a working-class kid, you know, that... I think the hardest thing that yeah I think one of the hardest things to get through was the fact I didn't go to drama school and I didn't I wasn't posh you know I was a working class kid and I think I didn't understand that that was holding me back a bit and then you start looking around and you go okay there are games being played here and I'm not part of that game how do I get part of that game how do? what does that mean well yeah perhaps reading more yeah maybe i need to read more maybe i need to you know in in terms of i mean i left school at 16 i got nine o levels or whatever uh my parents were fine about me going to art said but i didn't go and then it was i was about 19 and i went i need to do my own i need to do my a-levels i need my education i need to do that so i went and did that at, a, at an evening school in tottenham and suddenly thought I needed to read more because I was, I was working with actors who were saying things and I was a bit like, yeah, I feel a bit out of my depth here. Uh, and so I guess what it is, I would say is it's most important is to know who you're working with, understand, start to understand the, the the nuances of how networking works and how you, it's as much to do with who you are as a person, how you conduct yourself within the industry and, and 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 not just looking at yourself the whole time that actually look outwards because actually by looking outwards you're feeding yourself in terms of how you grow within the industry i think by 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 feeling like you're always learning is a way of getting on actually is, is i suppose in a nutshell because there's always somebody to teach you something and that can be a 12 year old kid telling you they want to go radar and why you know, which indeed they ended up doing so, by the way. Took them three goes and they did it. She's this wonderful actress called Laura Torture. If you come across her, she's fantastic. I have to name drop these kids that are just, just flying at the moment. And uh, Minel Shaw is a bass player who's bass player with Rudimental, but he's doing theatre now and doing more theatre. He's working with emma rice and stuff you know
1: oh brilliant
0: yeah and, I, and I, I guess what it is you know with the with the kids at me it's about daring to dream about saying to them look i'm just the same as you i was i'm from the same background and you know it is about it is about learning your craft but it's also about learning the industry and you're absolutely right that's it's not about trying to network for network's sake or trying to be overly familiar or anything you know that that, that there is an etiquette to it
1: yes of course
0: but at the same time by asking questions people are flattered if people you know by 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 saying you know by asking someone you know what is your job how does that work and understanding how theater really works the mechanics of it and even the finances of it if you especially if you want to make your own work You've, if you want to make your own work, you've got to find out how to put a show on and you, 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 the money isn't going to come from the money tree. You're going to have to hustle. Um, and I guess that's one good thing about being from my background is that, um, you know, there's an Arthur daily, daily feeling <laughs> to going sometimes as an artist to going around and, 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 and trolley and, and, and selling your wares and inspiring people with ideas and that, that isn't degrading. That's just something artists have done from time. You know, Michelangelo must have done a hell of a lot of... Has- yeah. it, it cannot be beneath you. You know, you, you do have to do that. But again, you know, it's it's important that, that you're careful that you do understand how it works and that you're not asking the impossible of someone. Or indeed, you know, writing to a theatre that, you know, asking them to, to put on your musical when actually all they do are, are, are straight plays. Or, yeah. you, you know what I mean? You, it's... I can't you can't stop that. I mean my job at Kiel at the moment, I'm looking at casting some readings and we're looking at younger actors. And you know, I'm having to to get up to up to date with some of those young actors because I'm not I've not they've not been on my radar and and that's really important that you've got to have that wider radar and all of that. So and that doesn't matter whether you're in the ensemble of a West End show or if you've just an ASM working at a new regional theatre or if you're, run, you're running a theatre or, you know, it's the same. Mostly this business is in, is incredibly supportive and kind. And there's a lot of it that's cutthroat and there's a lot of it that's very difficult, but you need to look beyond that because there's also a lot of goodness and an extraordinary amount of of good people and hopefully is what will help us get through some of this madness.
1: My my curiosity in terms of the networking point um, was, was, was more specifically, we talked about how freelancers who aren't attached to a building, for instance, mm-hmm. might feel more isolated. And certainly yeah. people who are just coming into this industry would certainly f- going to have huge yeah. issues with imposter syndrome and feeling like an outsider, aren't they? So yeah. I think it came from a place of if someone has no idea how to even get in a room with someone you know, right. like you,
0: yeah.
1: how on earth do they go about doing that?
0: I mean, it's harder, it's harder now at the moment, obviously, because it's not, you, you can't, I mean, I, I would always say it's go and see something at the theater if if there's somebody that excites you there's somebody that whether that's another actor whether that's a director whether that's a casting director you need to know them inside out so do your research it's not you don't have to stalk them but you know i'm not saying stalk them but don't network for network's sake you know find Hmm. the people that you want who you feel could answer some questions for you or your
1: dream collaborators
0: yes yeah absolutely and and, and then, you know, at least, you know, go and see something or go and watch something of theirs or understand that. And same with a the theatre, understand what that theatre's mission statement is. Most theatres have their mission statements on the thing and then find a way of creating a dialogue. And that could be as simple as sending a little postcard. It could be, you know, I mean, certainly, I would say if you really knew in the business, when we reopen, go and usher. Go and work in a bar, go and work in a theatre bar. You know, you can network that way. You know, a lot of young artists work in the, in front of the house. A, you get to see performances, you know, for free, and you could also analyse those performances. So you can walk, decide to watch one actor one night, and then somebody in the ensemble the next, and you can see how they grow or how. There's lots you can learn by doing that. Um, I think actually coming out of this, hopefully, more people will be more open to to having people say, "I need." I need some time. Could we chat? You know, but that's going to be a lot of people needing that. I I would definitely, in terms of, if you feel isolated, I think definitely going and volunteering at a theatre even is not such a bad thing. I mean, especially if there's not the work, uh, you know, if they can find a way of doing that. A lot of theatres are doing um, out to curricular stuff like food banks and, helping in other ways and there may be ways that sort of young freelancers could get involved with that and certainly I did a lot of going to see shows and hanging around in the bar afterwards I did an awful lot of that when I first especially when I was trying to be an actor because it was (laughs) I was trying to reinvent myself from being a singer a dancer in the ensemble and then singer dancer and then trying to get a job as in a straight play. I was sort of, I literally did. I networked in that way by going to see theatres and then particularly regional theatres, obviously where the, 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 uh, the cast don't go home. So, you know, they're not going home to London. So they tend to stay in the bar a bit more than they would in London. And I'd hang around the bar and I'd start chatting and talk about the play. And then before you know it, you're having a conversation. I think that's one of the best ways of doing it. And certainly, for example, if you were in a show at, say, Nottingham, I would go to the other theatres like Derby and Sheffield and mostly to see friends who were in the shows, but I'd also hang around in the bar afterwards, even if I didn't know anyone, and just see if I can catch someone. And as a young actor, start sort of ask a few questions. And so that's one way of doing it. That's
1: really, really good advice. Given the situation we are in, especially at the moment, we had the recent announcement that that Nika Burns is going to reopen her Nimax Theatres. Mm. Andrew Lloyd Webber is doing absolutely everything he possibly can. Sonia Friedman's is is starting to to talk about tours coming back next year. Mm. Um, and then you've got Sir Cameron McIntosh, who's who's gone. No, no, I'm I'm not playing. Mm. Uh, I'm waiting until there's a vaccine. Mm. Given your experience as a, as a producer and as someone who puts on shows, how do you see the way that people are uh, controlling their not empires but you know their their companies at the moment
0: i think i think i think it's you see everybody is different in terms of even if you looked at say the npos and how they're approaching things in, in terms of the theaters but the same goes for the commercial producers i think everybody's everybody can make those decisions on on what the situation was of their business at that time and so You know, we don't know what theatres were overstretched, for example, that were ready. You know, it was probably very likely that Southampton was already in trouble before it closed. I don't know, but it it did seem that. And so, so therefore, you know, I I guess everybody's individually in terms of, of, of the commercial producers particularly are, it depends what their business, how their business model works and how it, how it sustains itself and the same goes for sort of you know theatres you know without a doubt kiln are going we're going to open slowly we're taking it step by step we're not rushing to do something at christmas but we're doing things in october and november so i think everything's individual you know and and so and, and kiln we're developing work that we could we can jump immediately so there's actually loads of development work going on at kiln at the moment which is really really exciting and and so so things will be ready to go when we're ready, you know, there's no point just sitting there and going, well, we are mothball. It doesn't work like that. We can't. So it's about same as an individual, keep that creativity going with the hope that you can open. I would say, um, I mean, I I don't exactly know. I can't really talk much about it, but the the show I'm doing, it is not Hackney. I'm not, I'm not doing Hackney Empire. I wasn't supposed to be doing Hackney Empire Panto this year, which was a very weird thing uh, indeed yeah so uh, so but but at the same time i was like i made that decision uh for all sorts of reasons and but so the show i was going to do at kiln is now going to be in, in 2021 so i i actually i think what i was saying before it's the creative thinkers that will get us out of this and so one of the things that i think is extraordinary is that nick has gone well i can either I can either mothball and and, and, and pay out those redundancies or I can use that money to start trying to make things. And I, I really admire that because that's really where I, how I've come up with the idea of the show that hopefully might go into town this Christmas. It may or may not, but it, with the idea of, well, okay, you know, nobody's doing pantomime. So what happens when you don't do pantomime? Pantomime is canceled. Hmm. So what happens to all the pantomime creatures where do they go so they're in a warehouse okay so maybe they put on a show so it was just it's just things like that and i think that i think that you know each 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 to their own i think everybody's going i don't i have to survive so what's the most important thing for me to survive right now and how does that work And then you've got other people going, well, yes, I can survive or I can do what I love and try and find a creative way through it. Um, And then there's a load of stuff in the middle of that, you know, where people are going, well, maybe we'll just do some comedy or would, you know, and I think, I think, you know, I think if I had a space, I would definitely be doing something in terms of, if there was a way, and, I, and certainly most of the theatres I know that have, that are theatres are trying to think of ways of doing things. But I think for the commercial producers, it's about going, well, this is what I do. Am I just talking about this and it's going into the ether? And if you've got a, resp- like if you're running a building, if you're running a company, you've got that responsibility. But I guess there's been a lot of false hopes been made and false promises and not not for any reason, but nobody knows what's happening with the virus or indeed how our government are ever going to get us out of it. So I think it's a very brave move from Nika's point of view. I really do. And I think it would be great if there were more producers doing that with that in mind and there are a lot and there's a lot of young you know David Hutchinson you've got Paul Taylor Mills you know they're they're the they're the the, the, they are being those creative producers finding ways to do it and that's what I'm talking about so that would be you know which is why I'm working with the producers I'm working with in because they are like that and we're hoping that we can find a way find some sort of way to bring a little bit of joy but it's then you know will the audiences come? So you, it's a hard one. It's a yeah. hard one. And I think, you know, and I, I I, wouldn't blame anybody, even even with all that I'm doing now and, and whatever's happening. I don't blame anyone if they suddenly turn around and go, you know what, I can't do this. You know, I don't think there should be any repercussions in that way, as long as it's handled reasonably, because it's so uncertain. Mm. I don't know how how you can sort of go, well, we're going to move ahead, whatever. I think that's really tough. You know, it's going to have to, it changes daily. So I think, yes, a bit of creativity, creative producing is what's needed. And it's interesting to see who's stepping up and who isn't. Yeah. And they would you know be interesting to see as we move forward and as it goes on longer, people are going to have to start thinking that way, you know,
1: Something, I just want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about going to film school. Certainly my experience during lockdown was I found myself going, oh, you know, now that I've got all this time, God, I wish I could go in and do that. Or I wish I could learn to do that. You know, play the cello, go have tennis lessons. Is that something, was that something that was on your list? Go to film school during lockdown. and, And have there been things that occurred to you that you're now pursuing?
0: Well, learning Spanish is the main thing. Because basically Sharon and I, we were trying to learn Spanish. And we've been trying to learn it for a few years now getting reasonably good and then it all goes to pot because you get too busy and yeah so we've been much more uh lockdown was one of the things that we were like this this is no excuse now we have to be able to talk to people properly so we've we've been pretty good at that and we've been we're getting there I'm not saying we're successful but we're getting there. <laughs> um so that was on the list but the film school thing no it, it yeah yes and no i think i'd always thought about it and especially some mates of mine had made films and i was a bit like wow i'd love to do that and and it would be really interesting and and it was i suppose during lockdown and the idea of thinking well what else can you do if you can't do theater what else can you do? But also, how can you put theatre on stage? And if you are going to put theatre on stage, there are when you see it, theatre on stage that may be filmed or may come with a double audience, like an audience watching online and one in the reality. I was immediately drawn to the ideas of how you could reinvent theatre so that it wasn't just felt like this thing that was put on there, you know. And you look at some of, you know, some of the. Um, I thought, actually, Newsies is one of the best shot musicals on television yeah. I, I because I felt like I was there and I, and I think what they, and I've often felt that when I go to the National Theatre, uh, I've been to the cinema a few times to see a national theatre show and they deliberately um, mute the audience down. So you're sitting in there. Well, actually, if you're sitting in a cinema and you've got surround sound, put the bloody audience there because then actually you'd feel part of that immersive experience. And, I think we're all learning more and more about what that might mean. And I think um, not that it will replace live theatre, but actually then there will, I think we'll, we as artists will be required more and more, perhaps to be doing more things. And so how, how can we make that successful? And how can we make that a, an experience that will want people to go to the theatre to see it live? And that's what it needs to be. You know what I mean? It shouldn't replace mm. it um and I, I don't know so yeah it was on my list but i haven't I, I, but i only started looking at it more seriously um yeah during lockdown and i've found a couple of courses they're very expensive so i'm sort of umming and Ring. but uh i might yeah i've never i've never applied to the arts council for any money so maybe that's what i'll do they probably won't give it to me but uh we can try. It's
1: worth a shot.
0: It's worth a shot. Me and a, million, a few million others. I mean, I would say that to everyone, you know, like th- this is an open thing now in terms of that. The, the, the projects are open. Um, they're talking about reopening the creative uh, personal development fund, which is a hard one to get, but it's worth going for in terms of changing, either changing career or moving up in career um, but you know the arts council they're saying they want to help fund you know help freelancers and I think there's a lot of people in our industry who've always felt that the arts council you know projects wasn't for them that they'd have to jump through too many hoops or well actually you know what it's not and so one another thing you can do is even if you're not the writer or you but you've got an idea find some collaborators and go for some money there's There's nothing to stop you, particularly if you're not trying to do eight shows a week at the time and, you know, or trying to run a building or (laughs) or anything else. Definitely go for it. Go for it. Go on the website. Go for it. And there's lots of help on the website as to how you can apply. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, you know, BFI have got some really good things out as well um, in terms of making things. So there are funds out there um, to find ways of creating, making work.
1: The last question I like to ask people is who are your dream collaborators?
0: um, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Solid. I'd love to, um, I'd love to do something with Billy Porter. I just like the idea of working with someone like Billy Porter would just blow my mind. I would love that gosh that's two americans that's terrible isn't it let uh, me think british british but they, uh, they
1: came straight away which is which never happened so
0: yeah oh okay british wise oh uh, i mean i really like uh, there's a there's a company there's a company called told by an idiot i love their stuff so that and i'd always there's always been a company that have inspired me when i've gone to see them and they're, they're, they're not a big company, small company. They've done stuff at Lyric Hammersmith and other things. And like, I think they're fun. As a space, I'd like to work at the Globe. I'd love to work, do something at the Globe. And there's a, there's, there's a group of people, and this is God's on this truth, there's a group of young artists that I worked with um, on and off for seven years at Hackney Empire. And they became the Hackney our Harlem Theatre Company. And we... We formed a company with them and we got them to Harlem. They did a run at Edinburgh Festival. They did a short run in the main house and every single one of them is an incredible person. And they're now, they're now nearly 30. In fact, most, I think most of them are 30 plus. And they've all developed in so many different ways. Um, And, there would be some for me to go back into a room with them as they are as artists now um, would be really exciting because they were doing, they were doing Hamilton before Hamilton had even been thought of in terms of what the way they were writing and the way yeah. that they were, they would. They weren't precious about musical theatre. They were just writing, yeah. story and telling story, and they've all gone in different directions. Some of some are, uh, in fact, about three of them work in television as producers now, young producers. And um, as I say, one of them's with Rudimental, and others are recording artists. And there's just something about going back with those uh, sixteen young well they're not young people anymore 16 now established artists and go what could we make now what 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 you know we always used to start with a, with a blank piece of paper when i work with them um so i would love to do that now that would be yeah if someone would pay me to do that to go nobody knows who they are. hackney harlem theatre company if i went back and worked with them that would be a dream job
1: well thank you so much i think everyone who's listened to this will will get so much out of it as as i have so, it's so interesting to hear your insight into all of it especially you know given all the experience that you've had working your way through dancing and acting and production as well
0: thank you well it's it's a real pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for asking me And um, yeah, just to say to you and to everyone, we'll get through this somehow. We will.
1: That's it for this week's episode. Next time on the podcast, I'll be joined by Gavin Spokes, who was playing King George III in the West End production of Hamilton before the pandemic. If you're enjoying season five of the Backstage With podcast, then please subscribe and leave us a rating and a review on the Apple Podcasts app. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.